Luke chapter 8, and those verses that Ed read for us provide a sort of context to help us see the, the similarity of the kind of people that Jesus associated with. And we're just going to read the first three verses of Luke chapter 8, where we have in figures for tonight. Luke 8, verses 1 to 3. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. That's all we're considering tonight. And as we begin, I want to ask you a simple question. If someone were to write a character sketch of your life, what would they say? If you had 280 characters, a tweet to describe you in a nutshell, a character sketch, what would it say? Continuing in our study of the hidden figures of Scripture, we come to a brief character sketch of a group of women who aren't terribly well-known, but they're found in the Gospels nonetheless. Three of them are named Mary Magdalene, she's probably the better-known one, Joanna, Susanna, and many other women. And they are part of Jesus' entourage. His, they're part of his traveling companions, his closer disciples during his earthly ministry. And these women, just like the other hidden figures we've considered, they teach us something about being a Christian, which we may be tempted to overlook because of the cursory nature of them being mentioned in Luke. But if we fail to consider these women, if we overlook them, we'll fail to learn an important lesson that Jesus surrounded himself with all sorts of people, different kinds of people with all sorts of backgrounds, but they all held one thing in common. They were healed by Jesus and responded by serving Jesus. All of Jesus' disciples have been healed by him and respond in service to him. The church, the body of Christ, is composed of all kinds of people. You don't need to look far to see that. Just look around. All sorts of people. Not everyone looks just like you. Okay as good as you look. Uh, people from all walks of life, all kinds of economic, social, and cultural backgrounds, people of all sorts of sinful and ugly pasts, people with all sorts of baggage, people who are still struggling with sin and its temptation, imperfect people. That's what the church is composed of. And yet this is not what defines us. This is not what makes a Christian a Christian. What makes a Christian a Christian is that they have been saved by Jesus Christ and their lives have now been transformed to a life of sacrifice and service to him. So that should be the character sketch of every Christian who have been healed by Jesus and were committed to serving him. So let's see how we learn this biblical truth by considering these hidden figures, these women in this text, as we see their character sketch that Luke gives them. And to do so, we'll ask three simple questions in our short time tonight. We'll first ask, who are these women? Secondly, why are they following Jesus? And third, how did they follow Jesus? So first, who are these women? The first woman who's mentioned there is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. As I said, she's probably the better known woman of this, this triad of, of women. And uh, there are a number of Marys in the Bible, as we know. First one being Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's also Mary of Bethany from John chapter 11, uh, the sister of Martha. 
But this Mary is identified by her city of origin, Magdala, which was a small city on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. So she's a Galilean. That's essentially all we know from her name. But she's also described as one from whom seven demons had gone out. So we know that Jesus had been going around Galilee, healing people, casting out demons, exercising these demons, and she had had a particularly severe or significant case. And she is now part of Jesus' entourage. She has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom that Jesus has come announcing, the kingdom of God. So that's Mary Magdalene. The next woman who's named is Joanna. And she's got a a more specific description. She is given a a different description in that she is the wife of Herod's household manager, Cusa. Okay, he's not really mentioned anywhere else in Scripture except here. We don't know much about him. But what we do know about him is that he had some level of influence within the Jewish nobility. Being the steward of Herod's estate was quite a significant job. And you can imagine for Joanna being married to someone so closely associated with Jewish nobility while following this man Jesus who's saying that he's the king and he's in charge. That came with some considerable risk. And yet she's following. We don't know whether this Cusa was also a supporter of Jesus or if his wife's relationship with Jesus caused more than little tension back at home. That would certainly be a situation many women can relate to having a burning desire to follow Jesus, but being married to a man who has yet to be confronted by the power and love of the Messiah. But we don't know if that's the case. And then the final woman who is mentioned here is Susanna. All we know about her is her name. And then after her, there are many others. So it's Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and these many other women. So so these are the people who are following Jesus. And there is a description that is given to them Um, Along with the 12, it says that they are with Jesus. They are with him. Just those two words we are are likely to gloss over. It's an easy phrase to ignore, but it's noteworthy nonetheless. One commentator hopefully notes that the description of these women and the 12 as being with Jesus indicates that they were disciples or associates, followers, companions, and students of Jesus. This separated them out as having a relationship with Jesus Beyond that of acquaintance, these women weren't mere passers-by. Now compare that to the other people who interact with Jesus. There are the crowds. They're certainly impressed with Jesus. Right? You see the way the crowds respond to Jesus. They swell to great numbers. Their loyalty is fickle, and they eventually fall away. They come to Jesus because they are impressed by him, because they've had an experience with him, but not because they want to follow Those are the crowds. And then obviously we know that there are the critics of Jesus, Pharisees, scribes, scholars of the law. They're not with Jesus. They're against Jesus. If they're following him, it's to point out what he's doing wrong. Just like this Simon, the Pharisee in the passage just before, this Pharisee inviting Jesus into his home, not to show him hospitality, but to see who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? So we've got the crowds, we've got the critics, and then we've got the committed these women who are following Jesus. The reason Luke mentions these women at all is not simply because he happens to enjoy listing random people's names for the sake of historical accuracy. He mentions them because they are unlikely disciples. That's why he mentions them. They aren't typical. For a rabbi in those days to not only associate with women in public, but to call them his disciples, 
have them follow him closely, to teach them, meant that he didn't merely count them as acquaintances, and he was willing to go beyond the cultural norms of the day. They didn't just have an experience with Jesus, they had a relationship with Jesus. And just like this woman in Simon's house, who was a sinner, so these women are unlikely converts, unlikely disciples, people whom the culture of the day would not have expected to be the followers of the Messiah, the King of Israel. And yet, here they are. So by mentioning them so blatantly here, putting them in the spotlight for us, putting them in plain sight, Luke is putting this. And he's forcing us to ask questions of them, which we should really be asking of ourselves. Why are they following Jesus? Why are we following Jesus? How are they following Jesus? How should we be following Jesus? That's why Luke puts him in the spotlight here. Are we, like the crowds, just following because we are riding some religious wave, some popular excitement, some movement that our friends and our family are in? Is that why we're following? Are some of you here following because you are looking for an opportunity to criticize and point out how Christians are all hypocrites? Are you following Jesus? Is this mic cutting out, or should I just uh, should I use this guy? Okay. Okay, I'll turn this one off. So, we've considered these, these two women, who they were, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and these other women, but why are they following Jesus? Now, there is a description of these women that's given um, that applies to all of them. We know that with Mary, she had seven demons taken out of her. We know that Joanna was the wife of Cusa. But there is a description of these women that applies to all of them, and that is this. In verse 2, it says, And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. That description is given to all of these women. And surely, if we're trying to answer the question, why are they following Jesus? This must give us the answer to that question. They're following Jesus because they've been healed by him. They're following Jesus because their lives have been transformed. Why would there be any other reason to be following Jesus if he had done this to them? Throughout the Gospels, what are the reasons people start listening to Jesus and following him? He heals, he casts out demons, he teaches with authority, he forgives sins. And these women, like many people in Luke's gospel, were witnesses of what Jesus had done. They had seen him do these things that no one else was doing. But more than them just being witnesses of what Jesus was doing, Jesus had stepped into their lives. And now they aren't just witnesses, they are recipients. They are recipients of his authority and his power, not just witnesses. They have come to experience the glorious power and gentle authority of King Jesus. They're confronted in an undeniable way with the truth of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And now they've been included in that kingdom. That's why they're following Jesus. There's no other reason in the text mentioned for why they could be following Jesus other than that they were healed by him. And now as Jesus is going about from city to city, proclaiming and bringing about the good news of the kingdom of God, they have joined him and they are on mission with him on the way to Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom. As he's doing that, they follow him because they have come to believe what he has proclaimed. They are invested in the gospel. They are invested in the mission of Jesus. That's why they're following Jesus. And so naturally, the reason Luke includes this, again, as I said, is not just for the purpose of historical accuracy, although it is there for that, but to get us to ask the question, why are we following Jesus? If a character sketch was given of me, 
what description of why I was following Jesus would be given. Am I following Jesus because of the attraction of a vibrant and a multi-generational community like this church? Which is a good thing, and that's something to praise God for. But if that's the reason why we're Christians, then something's missing. Or maybe it's the orderliness of the church service. You know, I came from this, this charismatic chaos, and I came to BBC, and things were calm and orderly, and I love that. That's why I'm a Christian. That may be why you're here at BBC, but I hope that's not why you're a Christian. Was it the fact that the preacher said some conservative things that you really agreed with? Yeah, he's not like all those liberals out there. It's great. You know, especially during Pride Month, our elders are standing for truth. That's great. But is that how you were saved? Or was it the fact that there's a children's ministry and a place to take a break from running after your kids? Okay, I understand that. That's, that's incredibly beneficial and convenient. <laughs> but surely that's not the reason we're Christians, right? Or maybe it's a, it's a heart matter. Was it the fact that having wrestled with discontentment and meaninglessness, having relationships in your life broken down, you've come to seek meaning and purpose from the church? Well, it's understandable, but that's not why you become a Christian. That might be a byproduct of Christianity. Or perhaps you're more intellectually inclined, and you've come to believe in Jesus because, well, it's the logical thing to do. There are the facts, there are the arguments, therefore, ergo, I must believe in Jesus. X, Y, Z, done. Those aren't good reasons to follow Jesus. All that is like saying, why did you get this Ferrari? I got the Ferrari because I love the color red. Or why did you send your kid to that school? I send them to that school because I love the uniform. You'd be missing the point, right? I hope and pray that this is not why we are Christians. Hopefully the reason you're a Jesus follower is because you were healed and forgiven of your sin. Something that this community can never do for you. Surely it's because after coming face to face with the holiness of God, and the utter perfection and righteousness of Jesus, there was no way you could leave unchanged. Surely it's because Jesus did something for you at the cross, which you could never dream of doing for yourself, which no one else could ever do for you, which your parents could never do for you, which your kids could never do for you. It's because ultimately he loved you to the end, giving his life for you. I hope that's why you're a Christian. That's why these women were following Jesus. And this question of why we're following Jesus isn't only important for us to consider personally, but interpersonally as well in our relationships. How often is it that we discount someone's salvation for superficial reasons? We look down on them because we think that their salvation is genuine because of some other worldly reasons. Or how often do we rush to call someone a Christian just because they conform externally to what we think is important? Oh, you listen to Paul Washer. Well, here is water. What is preventing you from being baptized? Or, oh, you've come from a charismatic church and believe that the gifts of the Spirit are still for today. Well, read Strange Fire and we can talk in a few months. Okay. I mean, these are, these are trite examples. These are silly examples. But we so often apply standards other than what the Gospels teach us as a requirement for being a Christian when relating to other Christians. As in Jesus' day, so in ours. When we remember the reason for becoming a Christian, the real reason for following Jesus, then we'll see what really matters in the church. Then the church, like the followers in Jesus' day, will be composed of many different kinds of people who nonetheless hold one thing in common, that they were healed by Jesus. So that's why these women were following Jesus. That's why we should be following Jesus. 
But let's continue finally and ask, how did they follow Jesus? How does the story unfold from here? It's great that we know their conversion, but what happens after you believe? Well, there are two points we can note in answer to that question, one found in these verses and another in the rest of the gospel narrative. And the first found in these verses is that these women provided out of their means. That's how they followed Jesus. They provided out of their means. The word for provided there is related to our word for deacon, which doesn't mean that these women are our first biblical example of the formal office of deacon, but it simply means that they were doing the same kind of thing for Jesus that deacons should be doing for the church. In summary, they served. They served. They weren't now following Jesus to see how much more they could get from him. They're following Jesus to see how much more they can give back to him in response. The way you become a Jesus follower influences the way you walk as a Jesus follower. And exactly how they did this, the text doesn't really say. It doesn't say whether they gave money, whether they gave expertise, whether they had expertise in marketing and put up billboards saying, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. <laughs> Watch out, Pharisees. We're not, the text doesn't really tell us exactly how. But it does say that they provided out of their means. That means that they took what they had. They didn't, they didn't minister necessarily out of overflow. They ministered simply with what they did have. They took what they had and asked themselves, how may I use this for the purpose of the kingdom? How may I help the proclamation of the gospel? As Jesus is going from city to city, bringing and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, how can I support that with what I do have? That's what they were doing. That's how they followed Jesus. They supported him by serving him with what they had. And we may well ask then how this applies to us, right? Jesus in his earthly ministry obviously had many human needs that needed to be met, for he is both truly God and truly man. So we could say that maybe they provided food and, and raiment and a place to sleep and support and communication. But how do we apply this to ourselves today? What is the theological truth through which we can rightly and responsibly apply this to us? Well, I think the responsible way to apply this is through a sound theology of the church. I mean, you guys have, have heard this many times from this pulpit, right? The church is called the temple. And it's not called that for any other reason other than that makes us priests unto God those who serve God and serve one another. The church is called the bride of Christ, the one who is in union with Christ and represents his love and his covenant. And the church is called the body of Christ, composed of many members with various needs. I mean, surely it's a natural Christian response to salvation to then see this divine outpost, this embassy of the kingdom of God on earth and ask, how can I serve? How can I serve? I am a Jesus follower, a supporter of his mission. How can I serve? I think that's the natural application. Also remember what Jesus says in Matthew 25. Let's quickly turn there, and this will help us in our application. Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 35. Jesus speaking of the nature of the time of judgment and his return. In verse 35 says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. That should make it clear that yes, we may not have Jesus incarnate in our church and his glorious presence for us to hear serve him, but we have his church, the body of Christ, to serve. BBC has such a rich heritage of service. Examples could be multiplied of what it means to serve this church. We need only look at the service that is already being done here and be blessed by that. So if we're Jesus followers and we've been saved and healed by him, let's serve him in the church. That's how these, these women followed Jesus. That's the first point that we see from this text. But where else are these women mentioned in Luke's gospel? How else did they follow Jesus? Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 24. So going a lot further ahead in the story now, towards the end. Sorry, Luke 23. As we see that these women, in the way that they followed Jesus, followed Jesus till the end. Luke chapter 23 and verse 4. This is Jesus on trial. It says, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. And by the way, look who's there. They're the chief priests, they're the critics, and there are the crowds. So they are here at Jesus' trial. But now look down further. After Jesus' crucifixion, let's take a look at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light faded, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the woman who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Who was still there at the cross? Who just witnessed the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? These women ministering to him in Luke 8. These women there, these women from Galilee. And it doesn't stop there. These women aren't only there at that end. Look down just a little bit later towards the end of the chapter in verse 55. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They literally saw his body transferred from the cross, wrapped in the linen shroud that Joseph of Arimathea gave, and saw him put in the tomb. And then look at Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, these women, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Here's the key verse. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. So how did these women follow Jesus? They provided out of their means, and they followed Jesus right till the end. Not even all the twelve witnessed these significant events in the same way that these women did. These hidden figures are placed here to show us the significance of following Jesus till the end. And perhaps you're sitting here thinking, this is great, I want to follow Jesus to the end, but how do I do that? How do I follow in the way that these women did? Well, the answer to that question is in the simple lesson we learn about these women, and that is that they were with Jesus. They were Jesus' disciples. They were with Jesus. When last were you with Jesus in prayer? That you could say that you weren't just rattling off a duty or an obligation, but that you were with Jesus. When were you last with Jesus in his word? Those who practice these simple means of grace in prayer, in scripture, at communion, know what it's like. And if you want to be with Jesus till the end, start by asking yourself if you want to be with Jesus at all. Start by asking yourself if you want to be with Jesus in the present before trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. First, figure out why you're following Jesus. That's what we see when we look at these hidden figures, these women who follow Jesus. So let's see their shining display of discipleship and service and see how their lives magnified the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know our fallenness and our temptation. You know how we so easily overlook people in your scriptures whom you have placed there by your Holy Spirit through your gospel writers to teach us something. I pray that we would see the shining example of these hidden figures, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, these other women who stuck with Jesus till the end, who were there witnessing you, Jesus, on the cross, your body laid in the tomb, and also witnessing your empty tomb, being the first witnesses, the first proclaimers of this good news to your disciples and apostles. I pray that you would imprint this on our hearts, give us grace by your Holy Spirit to walk in this way, to ask ourselves why we're following you, to ask how we can follow you, and may you be glorified in that. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.